Now, uh, last week we were looking at Hosea chapter 11. We saw that uh, in, in chapter 11, there's a decisive turning point. Uh, right up to that moment, God has been warning his people again and again that they are putting themselves in grave danger of his judgment and of annihilation. But then uh, God says, how can I give you up? And reveals, in fact, that he's going to find a way, which we saw uh, last time is through Jesus Christ. He is going to find a way still to give his love to his people, despite the fact that they need and deserve judgment. And there's a little bit of a shock in chapters 12 and 13, because he goes back to even more vivid warnings. Uh, we're not going to look at that because I think we've got uh, the message from chapters uh, 4 to 10, but we must note that those warnings are there. Just because uh, he's anticipated Jesus' death on the cross doesn't mean that absolutely everybody is going to be automatically saved. He still must warn his people, even after he's uh, uh, spoken such words of grace in Hosea 11. We're going to concentrate, though, on chapter 14. Let's look at that now. Return, O Israel, to the Lord, your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made or in you the fatherless find compassion. And I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade. He will flourish like the corn. He will blossom like a vine and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. Oh, reframe, what have I ever had to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Let's pray. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to concentrate and to understand your word for us in such a way that we are profoundly changed as we've already Please then, Lord, as uh, your word is opened up and studied, we pray that uh, we would see the living word, Jesus Christ, and we would know your 
voice speaking to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Help us then, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine a wedding. And the church is, is all decorated for the occasion. Sun's shining, not like today. Congregations gathered. The church is a sea of, the, of smart suits and outrageous hats. You know what it's like. Children are squirming and uh, uh, wriggling as everyone waits. And there at the front is the groom. Looks so smart, so eager, and yet also distinctly nervous. Finally, a bridal party arrives. And there's hushed conversation at the door and the final fiddling with the dress. And uh, the organ strikes up, the wedding march begins, and she begins that, that long walk down the aisle. Everyone's smiling, everyone's happy, everyone's excited. The vows are begun. The groom solemnly declares his lifelong commitment to this woman standing at his side. The two words ring out over the whole church, I will. Then the minister turns to the bride. Will you take this man to be your wedded husband? To live together in holy matrimony. Will you obey him and serve him, love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? The whole church is hushed as the bride opens her mouth but nothing comes out. You can see the smile in her eyes has turned to confusion as, and fear even as the words seem to reverberate through the silence. Obey him, serve him, forsaking all others, as long as you both shall live. The seconds seem to pass like Hours. Slowly her mouth begins to form the words. I, I'm not sure. Are they married? You know, they're dressed for a wedding, aren't they? The ceremony that's being performed is a wedding ceremony. They wouldn't be there if they hadn't... Uh, already got to know each other and decided that they had a deep affection for one another. You know, the vicar has done his bit, the groom has done his bit. Everybody is there, gathered, willing them to get married. But they're not married, are they? It's actually significant that in the marriage service, the groom says, I will. He doesn't say, I do, as we popularly uh, think. He expresses his willingness to be married at that point in the service. At that point, he is not saying that he is doing it, that he is getting married, because it's only after they both say, I will, 
that they can actually become married, that he can actually then turn and say, I take you to be my wife. Until she has said, I will, there can be no marriage. They're not half married, they're not more or less married, they're not sort of married. His willingness and his commitment and his love cannot count for them both. It's not a, not a marriage. If she says, I love him, but I want to keep my options open, or she says, right now he's the most important person in my life, but who knows about the future? There is actually no fudge possible for a wedding. If she cannot say those words with integrity, she cannot be married. Neither of them can be married. That's actually the situation in which God finds himself with every one of us this morning. He stands before us, you see, as a loving bridegroom. He invites us into a relationship which is actually deeper and more satisfying and more enduring than the very best of marriages. He stands before us and he says, I will. But then he must wait in silence to hear whether those two words are echoed back. That's what Hosea is telling us at the end of his book. The last chapter, as we're going to see in a little minute, is, is written as a sort of marriage ceremony. But actually, uh, in Hosea's case, this is a, a remarriage, or perhaps more accurately, this is a marriage renewal ceremony. To understand that, we need to remember the rest of the book of Hosea. Do you remember right back at the beginning, Hosea had to live through a nightmare marriage himself. Chapters 1 to 3 of the book recorded Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, with the result that the marriage completely broke down. She left him, and she ended up uh, in the house of someone else, ruined. By rights, Hosea was absolutely free to go for a divorce, but God wouldn't allow Hosea to do that. Hosea had to go and buy back his ruined wife. God told him, go and love her again. In a sense, Hosea had to take her back to church and renew his vows to her. But the question was, would she renew her vows to him? Chapter 3 actually leaves that question in the air. We just don't know whether she became a faithful wife to him. Then after that, we saw that Hosea was, had had to live through that experience to qualify him to understand how God himself felt about his people Israel. We saw again and again over those chapters, didn't we, how God wants is uh, uh, Israel to realize that she has been like an unfaithful wife to him, that that unfaithfulness has ruined her as a people by allowing violence and adultery and wickedness to flourish. God wants uh, Israel to see that repentance was no easy matter. Anyone can walk back and say, yeah, uh, I repent. That bit's easy but it is profoundly difficult to be changed in such a way that we really mean it. He wants uh, his people to see that they've never really listened, that they've never really learned the lessons of history, and that actually by rights, God should be suing for divorce right now. 
because uh, his people have brought such uh, terrible calamity on themselves and such pain to him. But then, then we've already said in chapter 11 last week, God shows how he, like Hosea, is going, is not going to let his ruined wife go. God's righteous anger cried out, divorce her, but his eternal love cried out all the louder, go and love her again. We saw how God himself actually accepted the painful consequences of that broken relationship in his son, Jesus Christ. How Jesus himself bore God's anger that should have been vented on us. How Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we wouldn't need to face the force of his anger, but only need to feel the power of his love. Again and again through Hosea, we've seen that story is our story. Every one of us has failed God. No one comes to, to church to rejoice in their own righteousness, or if they do, they are hypocrites. God calls us to gather together to express our need to be reconciled to him, just as we did at the beginning of our service together this morning and then to rejoice in his faithfulness. Every Sunday, actually, is a marriage renewal ceremony for the people of God. God stands before every one of us and says, I will, will you? Let's then look at... Uh, how Hosea describes this marriage renewal ceremony that he's, uh, uh, he's wanting us to engage with in chapter 14. First of all, there are the vows. Actually, uh, even before that, God says you, first of all, you've got to walk up the aisle. Chapter 14, verse 1, Return, O, Lord, to, uh, o Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Uh, the first um, return actually is uh, slightly different from the second one. The first return has the sense of going up to someone, walking up the aisle. The second return at the beginning of chapter of, of verse two has the has the sense of turning to face them. Very much the image of a marriage. Here she is. Then she has walked up the aisle. She has turned to face her husband. God is waiting there for us. And then Hosea helpfully says, "Now repeat after me." Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. There are actually three key affirmations in this little speech that he tells us we must make that are absolutely vital if we are to come back to God. The first is uh, an affirmation about ourselves. Forgive all our sins. Seems such a little sentence. 
And yet it encapsulates something which Hosea has been trying to get across to us for weeks now. Hosea's not being a a marriage counsellor. He's not standing there inviting us to sit down and air our grievances with God. He will not allow us to say, well, I'll come back to you, God, if you recognise that you did this to me and that's why I did that to you and that's why the marriage went so wrong. No, he will not allow us that. We went wrong, not God. God was an utterly faithful husband to us. And anyone who wants to come to God must accept that deep in their heart and say without equivocation, forgive all my sins, God. And as well, there is another thing about ourselves that must be present. We must resolve to be completely different. The last clause of verse 2 actually gives a very vivid description of how different we are called to be. The best translation is the uh, uh, one in the footnote of um, uh, the, the NIV, that we may offer our lips as sacrifices of bulls. Funny, funny sort of phraseology, isn't it? In Hosea's day, you see, bulls were often uh, sacrificed as a, as a symbolic payment for sins committed. They never did pay for those sins, but uh, there was a sense in which some living thing had to be handed over completely to God. Here, it is our lips that are to be handed over completely to God. No, 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 they will never pay for our sins. That requires the death of Jesus Christ. That requires God, actually, as we've said, to pay himself. But there is a sense in which, as the New Testament says, we must offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Hosea points perhaps to the most uh, important organ of all, our lips, and says our lips must be totally handed over to God. There must be a commitment in our hearts to only speak for God, only praise God, only tell other people of him, only speak words that God tells us to do. It's a very clear affirmation about ourselves that every person needs to make every time they want to come back to God that we are responsible for our failures. And the only appropriate way to come to God is by saying, everything that I am, God, is yours. Isaiah says to us, will you accept that you alone are responsible for the breakdown of the relationship and will you give yourself wholly to him? The bride shall say, I will. And then the second element of these, the, these vows is not so much about ourselves, but about what we fear. Verse 3, Assyria cannot save us. 
we will not mount war horses. Remember at this time, in this context, this uh, mighty superpower, Assyria, was poised to overrun the northern kingdom of Israel and completely destroy it. The uh, warnings in Hosea are, are, are vivid and terrifying. All the politics of the day, actually, in Hosea's time, was aimed directly at keeping Assyria at bay. That one moment that meant signing treaties with Egypt. Another moment it meant paying bribes to the Assyrians. Another moment perhaps it meant uh, doing what uh, they speak of here, mounting war horses themselves and going to battle. It was all useless. Useless, first of all, because Syria, Assyria was far too powerful. But it was useless far more profoundly because Assyria was only an instrument in God's hand anyway. Assyria cannot save us. Only God can. Absolutely vital for penitent Israel to understand that. Just as it is vital if we want a relationship with God to recognize where our security lies and where it doesn't lie. Now think for a moment. What powers most uh, uh, do you most fear in the world? Everyone has things that they have a tendency to fear. For some of us here, it may be um, the mysterious mechanisms which keep us healthy or not. Who or what determines the length of our life? Is it our doctor? Is it our diet? Is it our exercise regime? God gives life and God takes it away. Fear him. Or some of us, uh, perhaps, are in awe of that ruthless uh, superpower, employment. We must impress our boss. We must make sure we are employable. We must work a bit harder, maneuver ourselves carefully so that we keep the job, so that we get promotion, so that that mighty empire does not scatter us with the, the terrible dreaded words, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. God gives us our life's work. Only God can take it away. Fear Him. Or some of us perhaps fear that, that, that love and marriage and family will pass us by. And that anxiety yeah, rules us so that we organize our lives around finding a mate. I used to know a young man who would only ever half talk to you over coffee after, after church because his eyes were always looking over your shoulder to see whether a pretty girl was uh, free. And if she was, he'd be off. Cut you dead. Because he was ruled by that need. Now we can only be uh, united with God if we know deep in our hearts that our security lies in him and in nothing else. What fear dominates you? 
What, what we fear, whatever we feel in awe of, is as nothing to the power of God, you know. Our health, our job, our marriage prospects, our safety, they are all in his hands. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. Will you fear God more than anything else in this world and rely wholly on him for your future? The bride shall say, I will. And then the third element of that vow, after this affirmation about ourselves and this, this affirmation about what we fear, is an affirmation about what we love. Verse 3 again, the second half. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made, for in you the fatherless find compassion. We've seen, haven't we, that Israel was deeply idolatrous. Sometimes that idolatry was overt, but also sometimes they claimed that they were worshipping the true God, but by the way that they worshipped, they betrayed that they were not. Do you remember that they tried to worship God using a calf idol? But in focusing actually on the thing rather than God himself, they fell just as deeply into idolatry as if they had been worshipping an overt idol itself. Worshipping God, we said, is simply loving him and honouring him and living our lives for him. That's what it's all about. And the New Testament takes up that theme and says that anything that distracts our heart away from God, anything that we love more than God, is an idol. The New Testament says that greed is idolatry. It says that our stomachs can become our gods. It says that sex can be an idol. Indeed, absolutely anything that we love more than Jesus Christ. You love money? So hard, isn't it, practically, to distinguish financial prudence from money worship, and yet we must do it. I wonder if God said that you could not continue to call yourself a Christian unless you gave all your savings away, could you do that? That's why Jesus was quite clear that it is the poor who find it easier to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, if, you, if we can't do that, if we know that we couldn't do that, he says you must do it. He will only entrust money, in fact, to people who hold lightly to money. People who are obsessed by money, he says, leave it behind. Or do you perhaps love your house? What if God told you to sell it and live in something half the size? Could you do that? Some people have the most subtle of idolatries as Israel had, loving the way they worship more than the God they worship. What if for the sake of the gospel you had to agree never to sing your favourite hymns again, never to sit in your favourite seat again, never, never to gather in your favourite building again, never listen to your favourite preacher again, give up all of those things. Could you do it? Only those who can put aside all other things and say, Jesus Christ, I love you more than all of these, and come back to God. 
Will you forsake all others and love only him? The bride shall say, I will. But then after the uh, vows, of course, there is the blessing. And in a normal uh, marriage service, the blessing is always in the form of a prayer. The minister uh, asks that God will bless the couple greatly. But actually, since uh, God is the groom in this case, he can take them on himself to give a direct promise directly from himself of the blessings that come from this renewal of this union. He promises that he will, he will cure that sickness in our soul that makes us constantly wander from him. Do you see that in verse 4? I will heal their waywardness. He promises that he will shower his love afresh on us. Verse 4 again, I will love them freely. But most of all in this chapter, he promises that he will make us whole and solid and complete. He says we will have a beauty that we have never had before. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to blossom like a lily. He says we will be sturdy and at the same time full of new, fresh life. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. Many, many of us here will remember how uh, Sammy Dagger, who's from the Lebanon, was talking about cedars of Lebanon. And he told us then that trees exude a chemical from their roots, which actually dissolves the rock. So the, the uh, tree is rooted actually physically into solid rock. Very interestingly in this uh, verse, the, the original language uses a word to describe the rooting of this tree, which can mean... Um, to, to strike or to violently thrust. Maybe Hosea knew of the incredible penetrating power of the roots of cedars of Lebanon, and he says, you're going to be rooted that firmly. And from that absolutely solid foundation in the solid rock, you will produce the most beautiful, green, delicate, new life. Young shoots will grow. And he says, you will look absolutely magnificent. His splendor will be like an olive tree. Somehow around you there will be a wonderful, attractive aura. His, his fragrance, like a cedar of Lebanon. On a hot afternoon in Lebanon, even today, there's a, there's a blue fragrant haze which hangs over the forests. The aromatic oils from the cedars that evaporate in the sun. God says you will be delightfully fragrant like that. So that people will love to come in amongst you. Men will dwell again in his shade. And he says you will be fruitful. He will flourish like the corn. He will blossom like a vine. In fact, you will be absolutely Famous. His fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. There is something unassailably solid and whole and beautiful about a person who truly worships the God of Jesus Christ. As we come back to him then, we find that he heals our souls 
so that each time we come back, we are less prone to waywardness. As we come back to him, we find that he shows his love to us again and again. And as we come back to him, we find he makes us more the people he wants us to be. Solid and fruitful and beautiful and attractive. He's not here this morning, so I'm going to, use an, uh, uh, I'm going to mention Roy Enoch. I wouldn't have mentioned him if he was here. But Roy was in hospital uh, uh, a few months ago and there was a disturbance on the ward. And a man, much bigger and stronger than him, uh, rushed to his bedside and said, can I sit by your bed? I feel safer with you. I thought of that as I read this, men will dwell again in his shade. People who know God, people who have that depth of root in God, others sense. Others come and say, what have you got that I can have? That's God's promise to us. And then after the, uh, the blessing, of course comes the sermon. <clears throat> Wedding sermons should be brief, shouldn't they? Hosea um, knows that. He's limited himself to one verse at the end. The way of wisdom and the way of foolish rebellion. Verse 9. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But the rebellious stumble in them. So we're here. Hosea has told us that there are two ways to live. He has spent uh, chapter after chapter warning us that if we do not come back to God, if we do not acknowledge the many and devious ways in which we slip away from God and rebel against him, and break our vows, and we are in grave, serious danger. But he has said, as the, as the book has gone on, that God stands there like a bridegroom who is ready to have his people back. He tells us what we need to say. He promises what he will do for us when we come to him. But we must say, I will. No, there is nothing more sad than a person who may come to church, may sit there, may metaphorically walk up the aisle again and again, Sunday after Sunday, but when they turn their face to God, there is a long, hesitant silence, and they say, I'm not sure. Because there is no marriage. There is no blessing. There is no life. There is nothing more wonderful than someone 
who may be doing it for the hundredth time or may be doing it for the first time. Please prepare to come and turn and face Jesus Christ and say, I will. Let's pray. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Say to him, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. Say to him, we will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. <coughs> Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we want first of all to affirm that we stray from you so often and it is only our fault. Please, Lord, we turn back to you. And we say everything that I am is yours. Lord God, uh, we know that our hearts so often fear the wrong things we find ourselves in bondage to things that you control. We acknowledge that you are the Lord of all things and we will fear you only. Lord God, we acknowledge before you that there are so many things that seem attractive that draw our hearts astray into idolatry. We acknowledge that you are more beautiful than them because you have compassion. Lord, we pray that you would not let one single one of us here leave without having said from the depths of our hearts, with our whole souls, I will. Amen.